Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans podcast. Uh, Wendy, it's lovely to have you co-hosting again. How has your week been? Really good, thank you. And extra grateful to be working from home because it's getting really chilly now. And my team keeps sending me pictures of their fireplaces and their heating switched on and everything. So yeah, it's coming into that time of year. Very glad to be inside. How are you? You know, I'm kind of enjoying being out and about, having meetings, going to events again. But it's it's been interesting actually because whilst I'm enjoying, I, I live in London and been going into London again. But I went to the theatre a couple of weekends ago and it was like it was just a bit too much. Uh, right. I, I ended up, I've never done this before, but I walked out because it was just wow. too many people, just a bit a bit too much. So it's kind of a reminder that we're all just sort of adapting to to everything that's going on. But um, yeah. Yeah, interesting times. We've got our first cinema outing tomorrow since it all kicked off. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm worried I might feel a bit like that as well. So we'll see. We are delighted to be joined by Cheryl Calverley, the CEO of Eve Sleep. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Hello, good to see you. Cheryl, let's kick off with a question that I like to ask all of our guests. How did you get to where you are now? Uh, it's a very big question, isn't it? I think ba- basically by having an absolute fear of doors closing and corridors getting out narrower in my life, which has meant that uh, at every turn I've tried to do something a little bit different and do something which uh, scared me and do something which I couldn't already do or which didn't look like the stuff that I'd already done before. And that's kind of what's taken me on a journey which started out uh, started out in Unilever as, as a grad and went my way through a number of different businesses all the way to, a, to being the CEO of a, of a scale-up sleep wellness business as I am today. So let's just kind of unpick a few things. So starting off at Unilever, did you always know that you wanted to go into marketing? My sort of background, my trade, if you like, is psychology. So I did a I did a degree in, in psychology and, and loved and loved psychology a lot. Actually, before that, I was a bookmaker briefly. Uh, and there's nothing better to look at the psychology of human beings than to watch them bet. It's fascinating. I, I, I love <laughs> I love watching people. Uh, so I, lo- I love my love my degree and I love the experimental nature. So psychology is a very new science. No one really knows what makes people do what they do, and everything is is always is always very fresh. And when I kind of came out the back end of my degree, you know it's difficult to know what to do with your career. And I was contemplating doing something sort of academic or going into clinical psychology. But my, my kind of family are entrepreneurs. My dad's an entrepreneur. I mean, that's a very grand term. He's a multiple business owner, should we say. And I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I like, I'm very competitive uh, and I like that sort of things. And I like to work in a sort of fairly fast-paced environment. So sort of doing research-based clinical psychology felt like it wasn't going to press all, all the buttons. And um, I kind of stumbled into a into Milk Round, and I started talking to business. I was going to go and be a management consultant for a little bit. I, you know, I did apply for, and I almost I didn't quite post my application. I wrote it, and then didn't post it. Okay. Someone said okay. to me, "If you become a management consultant, you'll never get your laundry done." <laughs> okay, just because of the long hours, you mean? Yeah, long hours, lots of travel, and I had a real moment. I was about twenty 
well, I've already been 20 at the time, and I had a real moment of going, I don't want to be somebody who never gets the laundry. Not that I was, I'm a particularly homely person, but the concept of never having enough time in your life to do the laundry, let alone anything else you might enjoy felt. Yeah, no, so I suppose, that, you know, psycho- psychology, you know, marketing is the world's biggest psychology experiment. I'm basically paid to experiment on humans and try and see what they do when I encourage them to do things and to watch their behavior. And I really, really enjoy that. And it, it gives me kicks. So when I sort of went on a milk run and started talking to businesses, I thought, actually, I think I want to go into business. And I think I want to go into into the marketing side of business, the commercial side of business. And and I kind of stumbled across, you know, a couple of people, Unilever, Mars, Nestle, P&G, all were recruiting there were brands I'd heard of, and, and I, I liked, you know, I, I I like physical products. I didn't realize how much I did actually until I stopped working with them at the AA. But I like touching and feeling, packaging and tasting, and mm-hmm. and I love, you know, more, more than anything else, I love seeing the stuff I've done affect other people, and I love it in a really simple way. I think one of my sort of happiest moments in the moment I realized I probably was in the right job was was I got on the tube. I would have been 24, 25, fairly young working on Marmite at the time and I sat opposite this lady and she was just eating these Marmite rice cakes and she was just really happy and like she was just you know like when you've got a bit of moment for yourself and you're eating a you know a snack you enjoy and I watched her and I just was like oh she wouldn't be having this moment if I hadn't created that product and I had this incredible sense of omnipotence and 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 impact and yeah it's ridiculous but that's and that's what I think as a marketeer, you know, works in, in products, you get that privilege. And I really enjoyed that. If only she knew who she was opposite, she'd probably have been super excited. <laughs> Some little brand manager. That's all I was at the time. But yeah. <laughs> Did you get to work on the uh, the sort of love or hate Marmite campaign? Was that was that something that you got to work with? It did. I was. I mean, it, you you come into marketing and you don't really... I think some people come into marketing and they think they're coming into a creative job. And some people come in and think they're coming into a financial job or a commercial job and, it, and it's all of those but I'm not I wouldn't particularly call myself creative by by trade or, or by background I'm not, I'm not particularly artistic or, or musical but the immense privilege of coming to work in an idea which love and hate was so love and hate had been around for about five or six years before I joined uh, the Marmite team and, and and having you know really starting to work in an idea and in a content and go oh, how do we take this forward this this incredible brand asset and and what do we build out of it and how do we take this brand forward which 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 was so resonant with with particularly British society, which people have got really clear ideas of what it meant to them, was a real privilege. But but also, you know, you know, you definitely met some complete knobs and quite a lot of people um, sitting in, particularly some of the creative industries. Actually, they kind of get a bit sort of fixated on quite how important the purity of the creativity is, and forget that they're selling products to people that love them, not selling, you know, art to artists. <laughs> <laughs> so now working uh, as a CEO of Eve Sleep, it, it feels like the last 18 months has been really interesting for uh, direct-to-consumer brands. H- how has it actually been for Eve Sleep over the last 18 months? I think interesting is a, is a, is a, is a good word. I'm not sure it's in- what, what my French MD would call English interesting, which means crap. It hasn't been crap. It's been genuinely interesting. It's, I mean, the, the world was going in a particular direction anyway, mm-hmm. and it was going much more D2C. But D2C was sort of slightly stumbling along being a digital version of retail, I think. So it was kind of going, what do bricks and mortar look like when they go onto a website? I think what the past 18 months has given us a chance mm-hmm. to do is, is is to suddenly go from being the the sort of tail to the dog. <laughs> and suddenly we are like, actually, we're yeah. right at the, at the front now. So, I mean, we've got a project live in, in the business, which is called Project Minnow. Because I said, actually, the minnow is now the shark. We are the ones now leading the pack. We're the ones now defining, you know, what what a, 
an e-commerce experience should and could be. So it's really taken the shackles off and given us the confidence to 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 what to, to to lead and to not be constantly going, oh, but the bricks and mortar guys, that you know, they're bigger, they've got this and they've got that. It's also, I think, you know, I speak I speak for my my team, but it's been wonderful watching the team sort of come together and and accelerate the decision making. And a young business is and D2C tends to be young, is particularly set up for these circumstances because it's born it's born with change in it. There is no fixed way of doing things. So watching the business pivot and move and accelerate and decelerate and make decisions quickly has been, when I say the business, I mean my team, um, has just been incredible. Just it's, it's, it's been able to sort of bottle that, I think, is the challenge now as we get back to being mm-hmm. a bit more normal. So coming back to your journey, I'd like to rewind even further if we can. So we've talked about what you what you did at university. So I'd like to go back even further than that, maybe to school and really look at what you were like when you were little. And if you if you knew back then what you wanted to be when you grew up. I wanted to be prime minister. Brilliant. There's still time. <laughs> oh, 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 I know. I know. Um, yeah, so I was, I was, I mean, I was, I was, uh, my mum and dad uh, was, were separated. So I lived, we lived with my mum. So I grew up believing that women could, I mean, no one ever told me that women couldn't do anything. And actually I was born under a female prime minister, whatever we think of Maggie T. Mm-hmm. And, and my mum, my mum just did everything because there wasn't a man around. And I just did everything because there wasn't a man around. And so, and so I suppose I grew up going, well, I just want to be prime minister and I want to do anything that I want to do. And, and no one told me uh, that I couldn't, which has been very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think I'm I'm a fairly intense creature, and when I get into things, I get properly into things, and that's what most people would have described me as as a as a child as well. I think fairly intense, very geeky, quite swatty. I was in Mensa when I was about eleven. Wow, yeah, that sort of child. Would you dare to take the test again now? I'd be worried about doing that in case I'd gone backwards. <laughs> yeah, and I think I probably would go backwards. So my 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 mentor score was very high. It was actually higher than Carol Vorderman's, and that was one of my biggest points of pride but i think it was because it's an it's a it's a formula that's dependent on age so i think if i took it now i would have gone back it was an old thing for an 11 year old to do go to mensa meetings but i did and write to newspapers and do all sorts of weird things but I, but i did i was a fairly odd child so right i love a fellow geek don't worry geeks will hurt the earth i feel so what advice would you give to your teenage self um god that's difficult isn't it I think, you know, I was constantly told, you know, be patient, listen, don't leap to conclusions. And it's impossible to do that by because you're being told to do that. I think so. I think the advice I would give to my teenage self is is probably take your time that, you know, there's no point running anywhere because when you get there, where, where have you got to? And, and I think I was very lucky to sort of get lots of things in place fairly early in my life that meant I could concentrate. I, mean, I met my husband very early. Um, I settled down in lots of bits of my life, which meant I could concentrate on other bits. So I think the other thing I would give advice, not to perhaps me because I ended up doing it, but to any teenager is just take things one thing at a time. Don't try and tackle everything all at once and expect to be perfect on every front from love life to daughtering to friending to careering mm-hmm. because it's too much. Just just try and try and do one thing at once, I think. Yeah, great advice, I think. When we've spoken before, Cheryl, I think you mentioned that you're from Southport originally, is some of the family of my other half. So you moved to London from Southport. Was that a massive culture shock? Yeah, it was huge. So I was as a, 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 quite a bumpkin. And if my mum's listening, she'd be horrified because that would be a horrible way to describe. <laughs> but 
So we, I grew up in Southport. I don't think I particularly went to a city aside from, you know, maybe if we flew into an airport on holiday until I was mm. sort of 15 or 16. Liverpool was the first city. I never went to London until we moved to London. So it was quite a, quite a culture shock, but I absolutely loved it. I think Southport is a wonderful town, but it's a town where everyone knows everyone. My mum was a teacher. My grandpa was a teacher. So if you're a teacher, also everyone knows you. So everywhere I would go, I was Mrs. Bouton's daughter or Mr. Warburton's granddaughter, which meant that everything I did or said would get sort of played back to my to my family. And I felt very um, sort of trapped is the wrong word, but I felt more watched than I wanted mm-hmm. to be, I think. And the wonderful thing about moving to London is the freedom of the anonymity to find out who you are and who you want to be. And you can pursue yeah. any bit of yourself without anyone kind of sort of judging you and going, well, that's not what your brother did. And I'm really surprised. I spoke to your mum and I didn't expect, you know, it's, it's, it's very liberating actually being anonymous. Very good point. And I imagine that over the years you've worked with uh, lots of great people. So are there any genuine humans in particular who've really had a, a good influence on your career? Oh, goodness me. Yeah. So I have on my shoulder, which you, you can't see because I've got long sleeves on, but um, I have a, a tattoo of an angel, which is which is a weeping angel, which I drew not on my own shoulder, but I, I drew for the tattooers to recreate. And actually has to remind me about all the people who watch over me and have watched over me over my whole life. My first proper boss uh, at Unilever, a guy called Matt Burgess, who I'm seeing in a few weeks for, for, for a bit of dinner, was amazing. And to this day, I sometimes close my eyes and go, you know, what, what would Matt do now? I was very lucky to work under a brilliant boss at Birdseye, Lydical Margaret Jobling, who's now at West. And again, I sometimes close my eyes and, and I can hear her. I can hear her voice. There's a moment in a meeting once where I said, but we've all agreed this. And she said, listen to your colleagues. They aren't agreeing. And I still, I still hear that sometimes when you think everyone's agreed, but they're not agreeing. So that's, so, you know, again, she's a, she's a good mentor of mine. And then more recently, my old my old boss at the AA, a guy called Mike Lloyd, who is now my chairman at Eve, um, who is a wonderful, wise soul, and is someone I pick up the phone to whenever I've got sort of a sort of confusion and conflict, and just whenever I sort of doubt myself, he's very good at reminding me what I'm good at, and you know, sort of putting everything in in context. And then I've got a close friend who's uh, who who works at an agency who is tend to the person I phone if I'm in a bit of a panic and I just want to be grounded. Uh, and he's always got some sort of what I call the wet, fresh treatment. He'll give me a bit of a slap and tell me to put my socks up, which is what you need. It. So, yeah, I've got a bunch of people that have kept me going, angels on my shoulder. Perfect. And bringing you back up to current day or recent years, even, you made the transition from CMO to CEO of Eve Sleep. Did it feel like a very natural transition for you? I mean, it, it did. I'm, um, I'm a fairly nosy bugger. So not a lot goes on in a business that I haven't got an opinion about. So, you know, I don't think I've ever felt like I'm in a marketing box. And and, and coming from FMCG, you know, in FMCG, marketeers own the whole PL and and are sort of leading the strategy of a whole of the whole business. So it's not not at all unnatural. And when I came to Eva's CMO, I very much came to be part of a business where marketing was right at the heart, the, the start and the and the end, you know, it was brand led. So and when I came to Eve, I kind of came going, I think I can see a progression potentially to CEO or at least a broader role here. So so it did feel very natural. I'm also a sort of, I think a lot of the stuff that you pick up as a CEO, there's two sort of extra bits you pick up as a CMO to CEO. One is around people and culture. That's something that most CMOs aren't dealing with day in, day out. But you, as a CEO, it's a huge part of your job. 
And the other is kind of operations and logistics and sort of the practicality of like literally getting the stuff delivered over the line. I'm a fairly uh, people-y, culture-y kind of person, partly marketeer as a background, partly I'm, as I say, a, a people, I love watching people. And I love, uh, you know, it's all, it's all fascinating psychology. So, so that came sort of very, I was very, very glad to, to get that. And I also fundamentally believe that brands brands and and the team the employers are one and the same thing i don't think you can deliver a brand without a culture that matches your brand so it was wonderful to bring that together the logistics stuff is a bit harder my coo is very uh supportive and sympathetic spends a lot of time explaining things quite slowly to me in words of one syllable but i quite like it because it's very down to earth people and it's very physical product and it's warehouses and vans and it's all very you can kind of point at things and you, you know where stuff is so so i found all that fairly yeah fairly natural and what have you been most proud of so far at Eastleigh? That's a really, really hard question. I mean, the obvious thing to say would be, you know, how the, how the team has, has dealt with COVID and how the team has dealt with upping and offing and remoting and then de-remoting. I think, generally speaking, I'm proud by how much we punch above our weight. And we do that. Mm. So wherever you look, whether it's the quality of our experience, the quality of our products, the quality of our marketing and creative, our financial performance, all of it is more is more than you'd expect of our business and our people and our sort of official capability. And we do that by sheer sort of creativity, passion, innovation, collaboration. We do it by sheer force of will and culture. And I'm really, really proud of that. And I think and I think there's areas we don't punch above our weight that we need to. And I think once we get those bits going as well, the business is going to be stellar. And just thinking about other brands that are out there at the moment, who's really impressing you at the moment and why? I think I mean KFC. I think it's hard not to be impressed with with, with KFC because they are they have managed well and also actually KFC and McDonald's both for different reasons. I think I think I think fast food as a category, bloody nightmare category. It's completely off trend, and we've just been through COVID, so all its restaurants has closed down. So you should look at that category and go, that is a shit show. It's a hellish place to work. Why on earth would you go there? And yet, if you look at both McDonald's and KFC. What they're delivering is brilliant brands, brilliant experiences, creative work, which people talk about, which is so hard to do, food, which people love, no sense of of guilt. I mean, yes, you've, you've always got a little bit of an overhang, but people are not guilty to say they're going for a KFC, not guilty to say they're having a McDonald's. And I just think the job they have done with those brands is, is, is phenomenal. They move organically across channels. They don't worry about sort of old fashioned and, and new fashion. They don't follow the fads. They know exactly who they are at their hearts, and and they, but they also feel very innovative, very new. It's not as though they feel old fashioned, but both businesses must be, you know, fifty plus years old, probably older for McDonald's. So I think I think those you know those are the brands I think are doing a fantastic job. I think I think John Lewis has got some interesting challenges in front of it. I think it's trying some good stuff. I think it needs to really really revolutionise itself, and I think it knows that and it's working hard on that. So I think that'll be one to watch two or three years if they get it right. I think people kind of talk about new and funky brands a lot. And I think it's quite easy to be impressive if you're a new and funky brand and you don't have to make money and you don't have to deal with brand equity and you don't have to deal with, you know, sort of history and, and being off trend. So I very rarely kind of I'm impressed by the likes of a, I don't know, a Peloton or a Gymshark or whatever, because because it's kind of innovation is is an easy way to grow. I, I, I'm more impressed by traditional brands that stay fresh, relevant, new, cutting edge, pushing the boundaries, which which I think, yeah, some brands are doing. So how has the pandemic affected relationship building sort of both internally, but also with your suppliers and partners? I think it's been really hard, actually. I mean, I'm, I am a very people person and I find it very hard to build relationships when I haven't had a chance to, you know, 
buy someone a drink or make them a cup of tea or talk about the weather because we've both come to the same place on the same time. So I think it's been really hard. We Most of our business success is built on existing relationships, partnerships, friends, angels on my shoulder. When you're in a young business, you really sort of try and you rely on the karma you've built through your career. So most of our relationships are existing relationships. Where we brought on new relationships, it's been really difficult. I think particularly developing products. I mean, through the pandemic, there's quite a lot of people saying, oh, it's amazing. We've discovered we can work remotely. And the answer is, yes, you can work remotely for the business you have today. But as you're trying to develop new things for the future, whether it's creative work, whether it's products, whether it's processes and systems, whether it's new relationships, incredibly hard to do remotely and, and not something I'm keen to do. I'm you know, I'm very clear with my team. I, I want to run a business to be with people building stuff together. Um, I don't want to, to run a business to sit in the corner of my room on, on my own. That's just not, not rewarding and fulfilling to me. Uh, and I think we've definitely felt that as a quite peopley sort of culture, quite a collaborative culture as a business. And do you know what? I've heard in the industry people saying that you're just absolutely brilliant to work with and a, and a real joy. What would be your ideal partnership? What makes a great partnership with an agency? I'd love to know who's saying that. I'll go and I'll go and beast them later. Look, I do this for fun, right? If you're not living life for pleasure, then then kind of why are you living life? Um, so my ideal partnership is very simply someone who's doing it for the same reasons that I am, which is to do great stuff, stuff that we're all really proud of, that makes us really happy to go home each night, but to do it with a smile on our face, to do it knowing that what we're doing today is part of a journey, it's part of a life, it's part of a life's relationship, a life's work, it's stuff you're going to tell your grandkids about. You're not doing it for this deadline or or tomorrow's CPA. So I just I just like people who, you know, have a sense of humor, have a passion, have a passion and commitment for what we're doing. And I like I, I very much like people. You know, I don't pay people to agree with me. And there's absolutely no point in me working with an agency if all they're going to do is tell me that I'm right. You know, I'm paying for people who are better than me. And my God, I'm surrounded by people better than me. Tell me what you think is different. You know, hold my feet to the fire, or else, or else it's pointless. You know, so I, I like I like a good bit of what my my mate would call jousting. I love a good bit of jousting uh, and a bit of argy bargy to get to the right answer. That's that's the fun of life. I love that. I love that. And what advice would you give to any future CEOs? There's there's lots of CEO jobs. Not all not all CEOs the same, and, and every business requires very different things. And big businesses and small businesses and old businesses and young businesses and bureaucratic businesses and manufacturing, you know. Um, but I think if you're going to see a business like ICEO, so a young business which is scaling rapidly, which is driven by its people and its culture and its capability rather than any particular technical, you know, it's not like it's got a, a factory or a particular IP or anything. You know, it's all about the people and you need the people in your business to to care and be passionate about what you're doing. You need them in their spare time to be wanting to think about work, not thinking about work because work's a burden and, oh, my God, I've got to fret about it, but literally wanting to think about work because that's where you get the extra energy and you get the ideas. So I think, you know, really think about how you make work fun, engaging, rewarding, somewhere people are cho- would choose to be. Is, is, is really, You're competing with all the other things they could be doing in their life, which are way more fun. So how do I make sure this is fun? I mean, that does require... Sometimes a bit of jazz hands for me, but that's that's kind of my style and you know and my leadership team. I think the other thing that the, the the one of the most challenging things of being a CEO is probably navigating the path between a bias to action, which which you kind of you kind of have particularly in a young business. It's very easy to act, and if you act, 
then the whole business acts because you're the CEO. So if you say something, the whole, the whole business ends up leaping. Versus holding firm on your strategy and, and not, you know, not diverting and, and not looking like you're a bit of a flippity gibbet and people don't know if they're coming or going. And it's a really careful line to walk. My tendency, partly because I'm a bit of an intellectual strategic thinker, my tendency is to go, I've got the strategy. This is the strategy and we're, and we're following it and and sort of don't, don't be diverted, which is really helpful for a lot of people. It means you get good movement and action and execution. But equally, there's times when you need to pivot. And it's being able to really signal, yes, we've got the strategy, but for these very good reasons, we're now doing this and we're doing this quickly, but not making that so often that you get whiplash. That is a, it's a really difficult line to walk. So almost knowing when to act and your, your base position is almost not acting. It's watching and listening and coordinating, but then choosing to act. It, it, it's difficult, but that's that would be my main advice to think about, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. So we're coming up to the part of the podcast now where we'll get a little bit more personal, if you don't mind. So I'd like to start with, what would be your perfect weekend and are there any guilty pleasures we should know about? So my perfect weekend, would probably it would start with a lion and a book, definitely. It would have an afternoon with friends in the sun, with food and drink, probably segueing into an evening of some sort of vaguely competitive drinking-based sporty type thing. So, I don't know, table tennis or darts or something like that, bowling. I don't know, something which involves a bit of, you know, uh, yelling at each other. And then the Sunday would be spent uh, riding my horse. I've got horses. And then probably doing something vaguely nice in the afternoon with the kids, kicking a football around or going for a walk or or something, you know, maybe a pub pub dinner although the kids are not brilliant in a pub but I like a pub dinner <laughs> so it would be it would be people and it would be laughter and it would be a bit of competition and definitely the sun and a bit of a bit of me time as well and then guilty pleasures so I'm quite competitive play quite a lot of different sorts of sport but my son is, has got quite into snooker recently and I, I play a bit of pool and play a bit of snooker and I have found myself spending more and more and more time at the snooker club on my own quite often so last night, you know, I came in from work, whatever, long, put the kids to bed, whatever, and about half past nine, I said to my husband, I'm just going to go to the snooker club. And I went and spent two hours uh, potting snooker balls. And I'm looking at there's, a, there's I'm looking at the ladies' masters, wondering whether I should be very silly and enter the ladies' masters and get a waistcoat out. So, so it's a rather obscure guilty pleasure, but probably pool or snooker would be would be up there, which would not have been the same answer in my 20s, let's be very clear. I had a much wilder 20s. So I'm a little disappointed <laughs> that it's gone from you know, wild nights out and going to work with no sleep to creeping off to the snooker club. But there you go. It's funny, isn't it? But yeah, do it. Enter the enter the women's masters. Oh God. Yeah. Yes. I spent some time in snooker halls as a as a late teen. I've Did sort of you? done it the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. It always all to do with a boyfriend at the time. It's unusual for women. So when I grew up um and you know partly Southport's an old fashioned town and partly it's the generation. Um, women weren't allowed in the snooker halls. So yeah. I, I, I played a lot of pool with my, my dad and my mum, actually. We spent a lot of time in pubs when I was a kid, kind of grew up in pubs. So I can find my way around a queue and a ball. But the first time I played snooker wasn't really... Into, I played a little bit once with my granddad, but really until I came to London in my 20s was the first time women were allowed in snooker halls. So there's this dearth of good women players because most women have only been playing at most sort of 20 years, you know, unless you've got a private table at home. 
we're going to have to have a competition because I've actually got a pool table in my house. So I've been all throughout lockdown. I've been practicing. Oh, oh wow. we can probably do this. There's a lovely pool hall in Waterloo that I go to. We could definitely do a pool. I'm thinking about starting the London Adland Pool League. Actually, fantastic. Yes, I think it'd be good fun. Forget golf. It's all about pool. <laughs> right, I've started something here. Okay, so coming back to Marmite, which we were talking about earlier, love or hate? Uh, I'm a lover. But one thing we always did on the team, actually, was we tried to keep a balance of lovers and haters on the team. Ah. Which So it was always it was a recruitment question. But but actually, you have to be quite, you do have to be quite careful because because oh, no, you're about 25% in the country buys Marmite regularly. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a 50-50 thing, although we like to tell everyone it is a 50-50. So you do have to to be very aware of, of keeping the balance. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a lover. My mum has it sort of a centimetre thick on toast, whereas I like just a, just a smidge with some very, very lovely melty butter. But yeah. I had a poor, another a different ex-boyfriend um, when we first started going out. I think we were about 19 and he'd never tried Marmite. I think you have families who are Marmite families or not Marmite families. And mine was definitely a Marmite family. So he, he thought he'd be brave and he'd try some Marmite. And it wasn't just a little corner on a bit of toast. No, he went in with a spoon. And I'm looking at him in horror thinking even I couldn't do that. And <laughs> I love this stuff. Oh, he was a mess. It was such a shame, but it was also quite funny. <laughs> it was, I mean, a core, a core bit of the Marmite strategy. I mean, so, you know, the taste you're exposed to younger tastes you, you yeah. come to love. And my, my kids are nuts on blue cheese because they ate it very young. So it's core bit of the Marmite strategy was how you exposed to the taste young. And a lot of mum, it's one of these weird things because whilst Marmite is salty, you have such a very tiny amount of it. Actually, the salt is fine. And a lot of mums are looking for savoury tastes to give, you know, their mm. kids who are turning to just eating sweets. So, you know, Marmite Toast Soldiers dipped in egg is one of the best introductions into into sort of savoury taste for kids that mums are struggling to get onto to savoury stuff. So it's a great a great way to get them get yeah. them into the taste young, expose them young to the taste. Yeah. So Cheryl, if you weren't doing what you would what you do now, what's your alternative career? And please tell me it's going to be prime minister. <laughs> well, I will still be prime minister one day. My alternative career, I don't think, I, I don't think I'm uh, diplomatic enough to be a politician, actually, much as I think I could probably do a decent job of, of running this uh, this shit show uh, <laughs> at the moment. As I've got older, I've spent more and more time mentoring people and coaching people, and and I find myself en- en- endlessly doing it, and I and I really enjoy it. So I suspect I would probably go back to my my, my psychology roots and retrain as a clinical psychologist and and, and get back into into a bit more of the intellectual headspace of people. You know, I'm a kind of, I've got a bit of a, a side gig. I'm a fascinated with neuroscience. But I read a lot of neuroscience, I've got a bit of a side gig in neuroscience. I do a little bit of sort of sort of quantum physics and a bit of that sort of stuff. Mm. I've got a bit of a geeky side gig over there. So I'd probably be an academic clinical neuropsychologist, something like that. Amazing. Well, I feel a bit shallow segueing into this question, but it's a karaoke question. So <laughs> do you prefer solos, group songs or avoiding it altogether? So there was a very famous karaoke night. So when we, uh, so when I, I was marketing director at the AA and we briefed our advertising campaign, which turned into the singing baby, if anyone saw the singing baby with, with Tina Turner. And when we briefed the campaign, I said, I would like to, I want to win an IPA. Guys, no one an IPA. One of an IPA. This has got to be so good it wins an IPA, which is the the ultimate award of, of of advertising effectiveness. It means you know that your money's been well spent. And I said, if it wins an IPA, I will. I said, and then I did. I said, this is your one chance, your one opportunity. Will you take it or let it go? And I said, and if we win an IPA, I will stand up and I will do karaoke. Lose yourself, Eminem. Brilliant. Oh, brilliant. And we won the IPA. 
So the the kind of celebr well the celebration night was a very very big very drunken night. We took over a, a big sort of uh, karaoke room, and basically I had agreed I would o- open the whole thing with on my own doing Eminem, and we weren't quite drunk enough either. There's about 30, 40 people not quite drunk enough, and I got up and, and just where I got up, my my account director at the time, my managing partner turned to me and said, "Just to be very clear, Cheryl, this is your show, and I'm not helping you." <laughs> and i had to get up and do lose yourself Uh, and i did and it was great so i i can yeah i can do i can do a bit of solo karaoke i'm not a particularly good singer but i'm quite an exhibitionist and i don't mind i love a bit of a group sing along we had a we do a family camp with my husband's family we had a big old sing song around the fire last weekend so i i think there's something wonderful like humans making noise and creating stuff together 100 percent. so if tamara and i could gift you an extra hour every day how would you spend it Probably doing some form of competitive sport. So if you could give me an extra hour, extra hour every day, I'd take up a new competitive sport. So I'd quite like to take up cricket or I'd spend it playing a bit more badminton, riding my horse a bit more. I, I'm I, a bit more time on a pool table. I'm my, my greatest sad. The thing that got me down most in COVID actually was the complete lack of any sort of competition. Because right. nearly all, all sport just got destroyed. Uh, and apart from an awful lot of rummy cub with my husband, I couldn't find any way to be competitive and it left me feeling very empty. So yeah, some sort of extra competitive sport I'd probably spend it doing. Excellent. How would your friends describe you and how would you like them to describe you? Do you know what? Actually, I got described as very not a very nice person. A couple of times I've been described as a very nice person and each time I always find it quite a surprising description because it's not, not necessarily what I would describe myself mm-hmm. as. And my son, when I got made CEO, this is a slightly sort of self-indulgent story. When I got made CEO. My son said to me, who at the time was seven, he said, "Why, why have they chosen you to be CEO, Mum? Uh, what, what makes them think that you can do CEO?" And I and I started to explain. Well, I'm quite strategic and I'm quite good with numbers, and you know. So I get to lots of good answers. And he just looked at me and he said, "Is it just because you're really nice?" Oh. And I, well, I was absolutely, I was absolutely overcome that, that, that my son thought I was nice. Is it just because you're nice? Um, so I, I think they probably would say I'm quite nice, although not. I, I wouldn't say I'm not a kind of nice person. They would say I'm ruthlessly competitive, mm-hmm. very ambitious, ridiculously high energy, do, far, do and take on far more than I should, loud, opinionated, fairly dogmatic, but bloody good fun, I think. Perfect. I think that's that's a, a perfect sort of coming to the end of the podcast because what I wanted to just say is there anything that we haven't asked you that you want to answer or, you know, I'm giving the platform to you, you can have any sort of closing thoughts. I think I think the only closing thought I would give if anyone is listening is the I know people who say, you know, the knockbacks in life are what make you stronger. But I do generally believe sort of in life stuff stuff just happens and it not that it happens for a reason but whatever happens embrace it and 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 and, and believe that it will make your life better and bigger and stronger and i think i think you can sometimes feel like you're being under attack hmm. from life and it's all happening to you but i think if you can take any moment any experience and say right how can i hold get hold of that and snatch that and say what am i going to use that experience that thing that happens to me? how am i going to use that to make me happier, my life better, me more capable or able or, or learn something. I think if you can you can get yourself, you know, there's this concept in psychology which is which is called the agentic state, which means you're in this state of kind of almost helplessness and everything is happening to you. And it's incredibly depressing. And and it's what if you if you, if you move an animal into the state of helplessness, they get depressed. 
And what I see in people is, is when they start to feel helpless, like life is happening to them, they become depressed and they lose their energy and they lose their mojo. If you can turn it around and say, I'm, I'm, I'm taking life, I'm, I'm saying yes, I'm choosing what to do, I'm embracing life, and I'm using it to my ends, you, you will be much happier all, all the way. And I think that would be my advice to everyone. Don't, don't ever let life happen to you. Take life and do what you want to do with it. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.